0: Well, this past week was the first week of the second semester for college students. And as uh, many of you know, I teach at Providence Christian College, and my class gets going. I have two classes I teach, they get going this week. And I have a good number of friends who are in uh, the role of being a professor at colleges locally around the country. And there is one consistent question that has transcended the ages in undergraduate college courses. And that question is, will this be on the exam? Uh Now, as a professor, you can be waxing philosophical about something, hoping the class is hanging on your every word and praying that your words are changing the intellectual trajectory, possibly the worldview of students. And then the hand goes up. And you think... Potentially a follow-up question to deepen the discussion. (laughs) Maybe clarification about a nuanced point that you're trying to make. And then it comes. Will this be on the exam? Now, in many ways, you can tell a lot about the scholastic maturity of a student based on whether or not they are obsessed with what's on the exam, what's on the final, will there be a final And I have to confess that I was one of these undergraduate students. I wasn't interested in being a lifelong learner, as they say at Providence Christian College. I wasn't interested in in anything but graduating and kind of getting on with life. And so for me, it was all about just passing the classes, getting through the mill. Uh, I was only interested, ultimately, in what was going to happen at the end. Am I going to graduate? Unfortunately, I will transition this metaphor to what the spiritual life of so many is like. They're not particularly concerned with what's going on in this world. They're almost overly focused on the final exam. Like, am I going to go to heaven? I mean, this is a question that, as I pastored in the Deep South, I can tell you there are a great number of people who would call themselves Christians. And uh, no offense to any of us from the South. But at the same time, the, the, they do not ask the hard question like, Do I really care about anything Jesus says about the way things are supposed to go in this world? About the way I'm supposed to live? And if you ask them, they'll tell you, I was baptized, or I signed the card, or I went to camp. Or, but there's no real care. There's no indication that they're in this process engaging the Lord in relationship. They just want to know if they're going to pass the final exam. And I'm here to encourage you today that God has so much more for us. He has so much more he wants for you and for me. He is going to have a final exam, and we're going to get to that in a minute. But I just want you to know the process of being a Christian is not just about the fire insurance of not going to hell. It's it's about a life lived in the presence of Jesus, learning about him and glorifying him. Today, we take a look at our text from Matthew 25 with an eye towards our church's mission to renew culture. And we do so in concert with our annual time to pray for justice in our world. The people who call themselves Christians, according to, to Micah 6.8, are to do justice and love mercy. We're to fight for the oppressed and the defenseless and oppose those who seek to discriminate against the marginalized or harm the weak. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Perhaps most clearly, today's passage addresses the fight that takes place inside our own hearts, as that battle is what will ultimately produce the wherewithal to take up the cause of others in need. So before we look at the nature of cultural renewal, if we look at the nature of our work for Jesus, as told by Jesus in his narrative about the final judgment, we need to talk about something. Uh, There is what you'd call the proverbial scriptural elephant in the room. This is a neat story about the sheep and the goats, but ultimately it's talking about the issue of God's eternal judgment of human beings. And this is not a popular topic. One of the most common phrases in just pop culture when people are talking to each other and potentially the only scripture that some people half know is, Judge not, lest you be judged. So the idea even though that would be taken out of context, is that there's no such thing as judgment, and yet nobody really lives that way, regardless of where you are in the political spectrum. You spew the most venomous thoughts about those who disagree with you. I know I have relatives that are both to the right and to the left, and uh, neither uh, speak with great care and comfort and respect about those who have different political views than them. They're very judgmental, especially those who claim there is no judgment in the world. So I want to address something and then give you a couple of thoughts about this something. And here's my first thought for us this morning from our text, and that is, there will be a final. All right, God's final judgment is a reality. I want to read from the text here again from Matthew 25, 31 through 34. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left... Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This kingdom prepared for those who were saved by grace was prepared for us before we were ever physically inhabiting the bodies we inhabit now. God from all eternity knew who he was going to enable to understand, comprehend, embrace the salvation offered in Christ He knew from all eternity that he was preparing this for us. And we talk about judgment not because we like to, uh, but we're also not, as a church, inclined to avoid talking about that which is so vivid in Scripture. We present this because it's first in our biblical text today and because it is, without question, seen through every strand of real Christianity as biblical truth. We can't ignore the reality of God's final assessment, his final exam of our lives. Or we'd be just like the student who kind of sort of knows there's a final exam and ignores that fact, just goes about their semester partying or Netflix binging, and then at the end of the semester wants you to just sort of kind of ignore the fact that they haven't done anything that would tell you they were engaged as a student. I have a son who is in my classes at Providence, and he knows enough to work hard because he knows that, for me, I would never allow him to fart around all semester doing virtually nothing, and then at the end of the semester go, I realize you've done nothing, but I'm going to give you an A anyway just because I like you, you're my son. That would be unjust. It would not be just because all these other students were fully engaged. As Christians, before you get off on any metaphorical rabbit trail about salvation by your works, we think we're rescued by Jesus's works. He's credited those to us. If you are a child of the living God, he's loved you and forgiven you in Christ. And that's why on the final exam, regardless of how well you've done on the test, if you're a Christian, God's going to say, come, come, those who are blessed by my Father and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But there will be an assessment of our lives. The Nicene Creed, which is real Orthodox Christianity, regardless of whether or not it's Protestant or Eastern Orthodox or Roman Catholic, all can agree that He will come again to glory in glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will have no end. That means he will judge those who are alive spiritually and those who are dead spiritually. In the Westminster Confession of Faith 33 1, it says, God has appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father. I want to quote from uh, R.C. Sproul, who's a professor. And uh, he has a variety of scriptural references that he makes. Unless you think that we're not going to go over these, these are going to be included in your community group questions this week for you to dig a little deeper. Because I could roll over this quote where he kind of cross-references four scriptures, and we really don't have time on Sunday morning to unpack each of these components. But Dr. Sproul summarizes for us what is a, a healthy... Christian understanding of the final exam. So I quote from Dr. Sproul. There will indeed be a day when God will redress all wrongs and judge men by what they have done. Romans 2, 1 through 11. Now we must be clear that we are not redeemed by our works, for we are justified on account of the faithful righteousness of Jesus imputed to us when we trust in his finished work. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Still, works do bring rewards to those in Christ. The Father purifies all those he chose in Christ, Ephesians 1.4, and those who, whose obedience to him passed the test of fire will reap a greater reward than those whose works fail, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15. Those who do not trust Christ will not make it through the test of fire at all. They will instead experience eternal conscious punishment for their transgressions. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. This week we have an inauguration coming, as Brooks mentioned, and prayed for our country, which is really in an unhealthy place of unkindness. That is what prevails, and the internet is not helping. The pomp and circumstance of an inauguration is amazing. Have you seen just the mere size of the stage I have this great picture here from President Obama's inauguration at the Capitol. And if you've ever been, and I grew up in the DC area, it's an amazing sight to look at the Capitol. And when they outfit it for an inauguration, it's it's really breathtaking. But the pomp and circumstance of an inaugurating an American president can't compare to the glorious return and final judgment that will occur when Jesus consummates history on his golden throne. The angels will come with him, and he will sit on the throne so glorious that it makes Washington, D.C.'s White House, Supreme Court, and Capitol buildings all look like cheap furniture. Jesus Christ will return in glory to judge the living and the dead. And like I do with my classes, I give them a study guide for the exam. And so here are two questions that are going to be on that final for us. All right? The the, the first question will be this. This question will be on the final. Did we humbly sacrifice for others? Verses 35 and 36 of Matthew 25, Jesus says, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. From our Micah verse in verse 8 of chapter 6 of Micah and that which is on your bulletin today, you'll know that humbly walking with the Lord is part of the Christian experience. Humble sacrifice for the marginalized is one of the things Jesus is going to be asking us about on the final exam. Humbly sacrificing for the marginalized includes helping the hungry, the outcast the poor, the sick, and the imprisoned. Now, before you say, of course, allow me to encourage you to ask yourself if you've ever scorned those who are marginalized. And I must confess to you, to my shame, that I have. You may be guilty of saying or thinking, they deserve this. Which implies... When I have thought or said it before, that I don't. So you see, humble walking is rooted in the reality of the gospel. We as Christians do not earn God's love, but instead we undeservedly had this love extended to us. Spiritually speaking, we must see ourselves and be reminded weekly as we worship together and as we fellowship together that we are the hungry. We are the thirsty. We are the outcast. We are the naked. See, we were laid bare before God. We had nothing to offer, nothing to clothe ourselves in that would make us acceptable to God. We were the the homeless person out by the 210 asking you for change. We were that person before God, laid bare. We deserved his displeasure, his scorn, but we were instead given grace, unconditional love. And as a bonus for those of us who walk with Jesus, we receive his unending and continued patience in the midst of our struggles. Two of my favorite verses along these lines have... Uh, bump up against a discussion of Israel and God's chosen people as a concept. Romans 11.6 says this about God's free grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. I love that. That's such simple logic. You know, if you have to do anything but receive a gift from somebody, it ceases to be a gift. It's like a transaction at that point. Romans eleven thirty four 34 through 36 says, For who has known the mind of God or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You see, humbly walking with our Lord means constant interaction with this thought. We are the ones are the outcasts Jesus has graciously brought us to himself and that should manifest itself in the way we relate with others John Piper says this you can't give to God anything that is not already his if you could he would owe you but you can't so he doesn't owe you anything and never will all things are from him, and through him he is absolutely free. You see, if God costs something, we would not have a chance. We don't have anywhere near the resources that it would cost to purchase salvation. We don't have, certainly don't have the righteousness that would ever make us acceptable in the presence of a holy God. We will be asked on the final Have we walked in humble sacrifice? Have we walked humbly with our God, recognizing that even the most downtrodden, even the most seemingly, from a human standpoint, deserving person who is out of it, they're no different than we are apart from the grace of God. No different at all. Here's another question that'll be on the final. This is a fun one, too. Did we know who we were serving? You'd think, wow, this should be a simple one, but clearly it isn't. Matthew 25, verses 37 through 40 in Jesus' narrative, these are Christians, people who have been changed by him, transformed by his grace. From the foundation of the world, they were made to be the inheritors of eternal life They know and enjoy the kindnesses of God. They recognize themselves as undeserving recipients of his grace. And he says to them, or they say to Jesus after he says they've done all these things for him, they say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick and in prison or in prison and visit you? See, the Christians are sort of clueless. They're like, when did we do this for you? See, Christians, sometimes they don't even realize that they're doing the Lord's work because they've so adopted a lifestyle of caring for others by virtue of the experience they've received of grace from God. Then the king answers them in verse 40 of Matthew 25 and says, truly I say to you as you did it, To the one of the least of these brothers, you did it to me. Jesus referred to the marginalized as his brothers. Uh, More so, he identified with them by saying that through our service to them, we are actually serving him. Now, as a brief aside, some have interpreted this differently. Uh, There's a group of Christians who love the Left Behind series books who uh, in their commentaries actually think that he's talking about the nation of Israel during the tribulation. And that's a bit of a stretch, I would say. I've seen theologically reformed and orthodox commentaries that would actually maybe venture uh, an entirely different but maybe overstepped direction by saying that our reach, our caring for the least of these, these brothers that Jesus is talking about are just Christian believers. And I don't think that is accurate. I believe a more complete understanding would be that by serving all humanity, we would know we were serving Jesus because we are all children of earth at the very least. We are all sharing in the dignity of being created in the image of God. We are not all adopted children of God because that comes through faith in Jesus, but we are certainly fellow human beings and called to love. And I think this would be consistent with say Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Let brotherly love continue, the writer of Hebrews says. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. Now, on a part of this, he's clearly talking about Christians who have been persecuted, But if somebody's a stranger, you you, you don't know who they are. That's the definition of a stranger. How is it that we serve Jesus by serving strangers and serving the downtrodden? Because the mission of the believer is to be a servant of Jesus, his representative, his ambassador, it says in 2 Corinthians 5.20. The church is the visible representation of Jesus. We are what people in our world and in our culture see, and what they see in us will be what represents Jesus to them. We are what they see. And what they see in you and me, if we've identified ourselves as followers of Jesus, as part of the body of Christ, this is what they will see Christ as. We're not just talking about our character which would demonstrate the kindness and glory of all of Jesus' as attributes. We have a divine responsibility to not just preach the gospel of reconciliation but also demonstrate that gospel through our efforts of cultural renewal. It's in this next season of our church life where we're going to be praying even harder that the people of our church will collectively begin to have a clear vision about how we are going to make a difference in our community, how people are actually going to see Christ in our collective works. And that would be collective works caring for those who are marginalized. James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And again, we, before we met Jesus and were adopted into the Father's family, were orphans. You and I are simply reflecting the glory of the gospel in how we live and how we deal with people. John Piper said... Our lives are to be lived willingly to the glory of God, or we will serve his glory unwillingly in our damnation. We are created and called to make the beauty and greatness of God known in the world. Our reason for being is to make much of God and bring all the nations to confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I've had a renewed and. In- <coughs> appreciation for the concept of royal glory as I have completed a Netflix binge of the series The Crown. Any of you guys been big fans of The Crown? Well, if you haven't, it's a really delightful series, and when Carolyn and I were on our vacation in San Francisco, the hotel we stayed in had Netflix already plugged into the gargantuan flat screen in our room, which is, of course, a dream come true for me. Can I say that on the side? You know? Just, all right, let's go. And then it reloads all on its own. You know, you fall asleep in the middle of an episode. You start it over when you wake up. It's the best. All right, so we watched this show, The Crown. And it's made me develop some thoughts about Great Britain. It's made me reassess some previously prejudicial views I've had about the country who we defeated 200 and some years ago to start our own nation. Uh, not only do their coronations outdo our inaugurations, I mean, by a bunch. I mean, if you think the inauguration this week is like, oh, it's so glorious, nothing. You got nothing on the Brits, all right? They outdo us in every way that way. As well, their architecture is just like stunning. I mean, it's, it's regal, it's, it's royal, and it's designed that way. I've been to the Westminster Abbey before, and you kind of find yourself saying, this makes me think. Glorious God. There's a terrific scene at the end of season one where the Queen's mother is in Scotland buying her retirement home. Well, it's a retirement castle. It's a it's a beat up old castle that she gets for a hundred pounds. A kindly old man sells it to her. He thinks they've met before, but he can't put his finger on where, and he treats her warmly and respectfully but with a level of familiarity that one usually wouldn't adopt with royalty. And towards the end of that episode, an official from London approaches the Queen Mother as she's walking on the beach with her clueless old friend. And the official announces that she's being summoned back to Buckingham Palace. And it's at that moment that he realizes, you're the Queen Mother. You're the Queen Mother. Why didn't you say something, he asks her. And she says, because people would make such a fuss of it. See, all this time he was serving and walking alongside and being kind to royalty, and he didn't even know it. One of the questions we will be asked on our divine final is, did we know who we were serving? For the believer We may at times go, I I didn't realize that I was doing things for you. It's amazing that by your grace you turned my life around and I helped somebody and you were keeping an eye on that kind of thing. Who knew? I'm grateful. I didn't know I was serving you. Amazing. What a thrill. So in one sense I ask, do you know you've been serving the Lord? But in another I ask you today, do you know the Lord who you believe you've been serving? I mean... Have you been going about the Christian life as if the final exam was all up to you? That you had to have it all figured out and do well? And unless you did really well on the final, I mean really well, you were going to fail and spend eternity apart from him. You were going to be a goat. Do you find it interesting that before the assessment of the sheep and the goats, he separates them? See, that tells us that he's already determined who the children of God are and who the people who aren't the children of God. And it has nothing to do with the judgment he's about to give one by one. The recollection of our lives, the thoughts of our lives. We are saved by grace. Friend, you, you work, you do the things because you know Jesus is gonna ask you about them one day. And if you don't care you have to reassess whether or not you really know him or you're just concerned about the final. But more importantly, if you're already like doing what you think are good works, but you're not even comfortable with the idea that you're gonna stand before God one day and he's gonna receive you and he's gonna call you the beloved who's inherited the earth, this is something you really need to get nailed down because you'll enjoy your life a whole lot more and really it will be the fuel from which you will go forth and do justly and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. Let us pray. Dear Father, today, as we go to the communion table, would you bless and keep those who are coming to you, perhaps for the first time, and saying, I I want to settle this notion that I'm your child so that I can be at rest. So that I can know that a final exam is coming. And while you will assess what I have done with the great gifts that you've imparted to me to distribute to others, I will be your child forever. And Lord, uh, unless we know you love us and you will love us eternally, we'll just be so stunted in our passion to care and to be the church that loves mercy, and does justly. Would you bless this season of response to your word this morning and bring new life to hearts who would do what would glorify you?